electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And hello, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan in for Kelly once again. Inflation Nation. It is a hot topic right now because while you weren't looking, prices suddenly became red hot everywhere for everything. Does this put the Federal Reserve between a rock and a rate place? D.C. in focus, the House debating a second impeachment of President Trump right now. Will the Senate go along? The situation evolving by the hour. Plus, the first big IPO of the year delivers Intel's swan song and Airbnb doing something that may surprise you. All right, so much to do, but as always, you are here to know how your money and investments are doing and who better than Dom Chu to deliver on that very promise. Dom. All right, Sully, your money and your investments are at the highs of the session right now. It's green across the screen. It was not that case shortly after the opening bell this morning, but currently the Dow Industrials, it's, yes, a modest 50-point gain still, though. Highs of the session just near there right now. 38.12, the last trade for the S&P, up roughly one-third of 1%, and outperformance from the NASDAQ composite up over one-half of 1%, 13.149, the last trade there. Speaking of higher prices, inflation, housing has been hot. Interest rates are on the rise. That's prompting more people to try to lock in and refinance lower rates. What are they using some of that cash for if they cash out and refinance? Maybe improving their homes, things like that. Well, the home construction ETF, ticker ITV, is up about one-third of 1% off the highs of the session. Still, though, KB Home comes out with better-than-expected financial results. They expect a more robust year this year for the housing market. That's helping to propel those home builder stocks higher. And the IPO du jour, 2021, off to a hot start for this stock. Affirm Holdings up 103% right now at the highs of the session. So far today, $103 was that trade. It opened, priced at $49, opened at $90.90, a massive move higher for this particular fintech company. So the IPO trend continues right now. Red hot prices for housing, interest rates on the rise, and IPOs still going up. We'll send things back over to you, Brian. All right, Dominic Chu, yeah, it's a big one. We're going to be talking about it coming up in rapid fire. Certainly a big one to get through there as well, guys. Uh, So let's go ahead and move on if we can, and we certainly can, because there is a lot more to talk about, and I will get to that in just one second. I'm trying to figure out exactly where we are. All right, so we've got some breaking news from Steve Leisman on the Federal Reserve. I knew there was a surprise in there somewhere. Steve Leisman, you got some breaking news heads from the Fed. I'm going to try to figure out what's going on, so save me and save the program. Uh, Thanks, Brian. Yeah, Fed Governor Lael Brainerd in a wide-ranging speech on the economy, the pandemic, and the outlook for monetary policy says the current pace of purchase will remain appropriate for quite some time. That's the hot-button issue she's talking about there, about the $120 billion a month of asset purchases the Fed is doing right now, with some Fed officials saying it may end this year. She's not talking that way. She says the economy is far away from the Fed's goals of maximum employment uh, and price stability. There's some risk to the upside, she says, though, from both the vaccines 
and a globalized synchronized recovery if everybody gets vaccinated around the world. But the near-term outlook is challenged from the pandemic resurgence and says spending data points to a considerable loss of momentum. She calls the recovery a K-shaped recovery and says it remains highly uneven, talks a lot about people who have been disadvantaged in the recovery. Now, on the opening of your show, she talks about this issue of inflation, which you were talking about. Inflation expectations are up, she says, but they remain close to the low end of the historical range. They may temporarily, note that word temporarily, Brian, rise to or above 2% in a few months. That's the Fed's tolerance uh, in their new policy statement. And it needs to be sustained, a sustained improvement in inflation to meet and average the Fed's goal. So, Brian, um, I know people out there are talking about inflation, about prices being hot out there right now. The Fed right now, not hot about inflation and price, price increases. Well, I, Steve, it's, it's the perfect segue because when you say people are talking about prices, you mean <clears throat> us and, and me right now, Steve Leisman. Maybe Leo Brainerd could watch this next segment. Steve, thank you very much. All right, as always, Steve provides the perfect segue into this, coming out of those Fed headlines, because there may be a big concern creeping its way into the market, whatever the Fed says. And that is corn. Okay, it is, it is not just corn, but it is many commodities, because don't look now, but inflation may actually start to become a problem if it isn't already. Sure, headline inflation numbers came in a little bit hotter than expected today. That is no surprise. Look at all of this. Corn prices. They're soaring to nearly the highest level in eight years. Something corn-related probably goes into nearly everything you buy at the grocery store. It's not just corn. It is wheat, trading at its highest since 2014. Soybeans, trading at their highest in six years. That's pretty much all the food. And it may not just be what you eat, but what you wear. Cotton prices on the rise, surging lately at their highest since 2018. By the way, we don't have time to run through all of it. I'll just name a few. Lumber, steel, sugar, copper, and others. All up big in the last few months, as well as shipping costs at or near records. In fact, the only reason the official inflation numbers maybe didn't run hotter is because airfares remain low. Yeah, that's in that calculation. It is not just manufacturers and you that are likely to be paying more if all this continues. The Fed could have a problem on its hands. Hot inflation, but no way to raise rates as America tries to recover economically, what Steve just talked about. Let's talk about it more. Joining us now is Marco Papage, Chief Strategist for the Clock Tower Group, and Barry Knapp, Director of Research at Ironsides Macro. Uh, Marco, I'm going to start with you. I'm not saying inflation is a problem now, but if these trends continue, it could be. Does the Fed have any power to stop it? No, not at all. And I actually don't think there's, they would see this as a problem. Uh, I think, you know, we have to consider the macro context in which we find ourselves. And I think the most important macro context right now is the social angst that's going on in the country. And um, exactly like in the 1960s, I think that you will see policymakers reach for the lever that they're most comfortable reaching for when there is angst. And that's fiscal profligacy. The flame of social angst is going to be doused by the blanket of basically massive fiscal profligacy. We know that's coming. Um, the Fed is not going to be able to respond to that because they're not just pushing on a string. They're being pulled by the string of Treasury issuance. And so I think that um, we should just expect higher inflation. That's what policymakers are guiding us towards and invest accordingly. 
Okay, Barry, sit tight, because speaking of this, let's get right to Rick, then we'll come back to this conversation. We've got the news alert in the bond market with 30-year bonds up for auction. Rick Santelli, how'd it go? This is a poster child for what a hot, hot, hot auction looks like. A-plus on the 30-year bond, $24 billion. Uh, the ultimate yield at the Dutch auction, 1.825. The when issued low was 1.83. This was a great pricing auction. And if you go through all the numbers, 2.47 bid to cover blows away the 10 auction average. 68.6 on indirects, best since July. If you look at directs, 17.2, well, well, well above the 13%. And here's the kicker. If you add the directs and indirects, what's left gets taken by the dealers? Well, the dealers take 14.2%. I have a 20-year database on bonds, which goes back to when they came back because we got rid of them for a while. There's no number close to this. This is the lowest percentage of dealers uh, taking the auction I have going back on those 20 years. And what that tells me is what, Brian, you've been talking about. There's a lot of things going on that should make us nervous about higher rates. But in the here and now, 30-year bond is probably a good deal from an international standpoint, especially if you consider that ultimately, ultimately, the dollar may have slowed down just a little bit. And that's also a plus, at least for the near term. Back to you. All right, well said. As always, Rick Santelli. Rick, thank you. Let's go back down to the conversation. Barry Knapp, I mean, can that continue? We, we talk about inflation. We talk about how we may be the, uh, the, the, the best house on a bad street, and there will be global demand for U.S. bonds no matter what our economic recovery or inflation. Um, well, there's, there's demand right now. The rally that took place last week was driven by inflation break-evens until payrolls on Friday. Um, and then the real rate part of the market really took off. That went too far, too fast. That's why the auctions went well this week. And, and if you think about the sequencing of what's likely to occur, and by the way, I, I love Marco's uh, analog to the 60s. He actually wrote a lot about that in one of my Outlook notes, how this is very similar, that the focus has moved from inflation to unemployment at the monetary policy level. But that notwithstanding, uh, what happened even in the last few weeks is this idea that we're going to have huge fiscal stimulus in the near term, and that's going to drive uh, real rates, the you know, real rates significantly mm. higher. What's actually going to happen is the inflation component of bond yields is moving up. It's moved from one and three quarters to two percent. All the way up to two and a quarter, people like Lael Brainerd are going to be patting themselves on the back going, listen, we're finally getting inflation. This is what we want. When it likely will go through two and a quarter sometime in the spring, then the Fed officials are going to start to get nervous. At that point, the taper talk will heat up and then real rates will move and that'll be a bigger problem. But the, listen, well, Barry, the Barry point, a quick follow up to you on that before we go back to Marco, a quick follow up. If we get the taper talk at some point, it will happen. Will we have a taper tantrum again like we have seen in the markets? Oh, no question about it, Brian. Um, you know, there was one policy normalization related correction in every business cycle since World War II. Last cycle, there were eight and most of them were related to QE programs. You know, the end of QE1, QE2, so on and so forth. We will get one of those at one point this year. And that's what drives it is, is tips, yields, or real rates. But listen, the, the broader structural story here is 30 years of disinflation was driven by goods prices, right? This was the total supply of industrialized labor going from uh, mm -hmm. 750 million to 2 billion. 
this massive labor supply shock was China was entered or integrated into global supply chains that we ran out of all that cheap labor now. And you can even see what's gone on with goods prices yeah. since June when they were running negative one percent. They're one point seven now. So your commodity prices yeah, are recovering and, and, from the trade war and the pandemic and they're on their way higher. So. And don't forget about demographics. Millennial demographics is destiny. I know we're focused on the pandemic, but with 85 million millennials now sort of in peak heading or peak earnings age and child rearing and buying homes. Marco, final one to you. You referenced the 60s. Please tell our viewers you're not suggesting the stock market will do the same thing with a negative real return between 1968 and 1980. Are you? No, I am. I am. But not in the early innings. I mean, if you look at the performance 71, 72, 73, it wasn't that bad. There is a, you know, there is a period of performance when inflation first rears its head. Inflation is not negative for earnings in the first, like, from, let's say, 2 to 4%. I mean, you know, it depends on the sector. Obviously, there's some sectors that do better than others. Uh, so we are now in that early stage, which is going to burn out relatively quickly. I think this cycle is going to be extraordinary but it's going to be short. Last cycle was long for a number of macro reasons. There was a lot of head fins from policy, from household deleveraging, balance sheet recession. You know, a lot of a lot of things happened last cycle that popped animal spirits. This time around, we're going to have, I think, two to three years where stock market performs exceedingly well. But then over the mm-hmm. course of this decade, I do think 70s are an analog. Yeah, I know. I know you got to to go. Wow. But Brian, uh, the real I, point I, is- Barry, we got to leave it. We got to leave it there. We got breaking news out of D.C. Barry, I, I love the conversation. I don't like necessarily Marco's thesis. We'll get you both back on very soon to continue it. Guys, appreciate it. We have to get now to D.C. because here's a live look at Capitol Hill, where the House is meeting right now in session and will soon be voting on impeaching President Trump for a second time. Let's get the very latest on where we stand this hour and where it's likely to go today and tomorrow. And for that, we go to Elon Moy. Elon. Brian, the final debate over impeaching President Trump for incitement of insurrection has now begun. We expect this to last for about two hours. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi opened the floor by calling the president a clear and present danger. The president must be impeached, and I believe the president must be convicted by the Senate, a constitutional remedy that will ensure that the republic will be safe from this man who was so resolutely determined to tear down the things that we hold dear and that hold us together. No Republicans voted with Democrats earlier today on a procedural motion, but at least five have publicly said that they will support the final vote on impeachment this afternoon, including the chairwoman of the House Republican Conference, Liz Cheney. But even as this historic process plays out for the second time in the House, all eyes are already turning to the Senate. A top Democrat in the House today said that they do plan to send the article to the upper chamber immediately, though Pelosi herself has not yet confirmed that. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who's been a close ally of President Trump in the past, railed against the process this morning, warning that it would damage the institutions of government, divide the country, and potentially result in more violence. Now, just a few minutes ago, Brian, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's office said that the chamber will not come back into session for a trial before its scheduled return on January 19th. Back to you. All right, then I got, I got a couple of follow-ups on this, Alon. Number one, what overall do we expect from the Senate as far as impeachment? I mean, could there be some surprises? I know there are some senators that are, even on the Republicans, not happy with the president. And can Congress, which struggles a lot to get anything done, 
do an impeachment trial and try to pass stimulus at the same time? Great, Brian. So on the first question of how many Republicans might support uh, convicting President Trump in a trial in the Senate, so far just two Republicans have said that they would do so and that they think the president should step down. Those are Pat Toomey and Lisa Murkowski. But uh, there was a lot of uh, sort of angst around this report in The New York Times that Mitch McConnell is secretly pleased that the House is impeaching Trump and does believe that he committed impeachable offenses. So the number of House Republicans that support the measure uh, to vote for impeachment could be a signal of how much support the president has or doesn't have over in the Senate. Meanwhile, the other challenges here, the president will already be out of office by the time this trial takes place. And so that means that this is really more of a symbolic moment. And the struggle for Democrats is going to be how to conduct the trial, still hold the president accountable as they see fit, but at the same time, move forward on Biden's agenda. My latest reporting is that the uh, Biden administration does want to move forward with a bipartisan COVID relief package. It's going to be really hard to achieve that type of harmony in the midst of a divisive impeachment trial in the Senate. Brian? Yeah, and, and has anybody asked Joe Biden how he feels about this? Is this the way he wants to kick off his term as president of the United States? A lot more to come. Alon Moy, thank you very much. All right, so much more ahead on this program as well this hour, including how's this for bullish? 29 buys, two holds, and no sells on an oil stock, maybe the most listened to man in American oil, Scott Sheffield, CEO Pioneer, will be here live coming up. Their stock up 50% in just three months. We'll talk about the return of the energy trade. Plus, speeding up the rollout. We'll chat with Walgreens about the role pharmacies are playing in getting that vaccine from the distribution center into your arm. And are you looking for some new opportunities as we claw out of the pandemic? Don't worry, I got you covered. Some new consumer names that Jeffries loves for the coming roaring 20s. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Oh, welcome back to The Exchange. Even as COVID-19 vaccinations ramp up across America, there are still questions and some confusion about the rollout. Here's the good news. More than 9 million people have now received a first dose. The problem is that far more doses have been sent out than have been used. So what exactly is holding states and cities back from speeding up the process? Joining us now is Rena Shaw. She is vice president of Walgreens Pharmacy Operations and services group. Rena, thank you very much for joining us on CNBC. I know that you and your team, as well as others, you have a Herculean task. I've actually been on the road. I've seen the vaccines with my own eyes. Just transporting them, especially super cold temperatures, is hard. So a shout out to everybody out there. That said, there is frustration, particularly in this area, with the sluggishness of the rollout. What can we do to speed it up? 
Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And um, as you mentioned, I'm incredibly proud of our pharmacists, our team members, everyone in the organization, because um, as you know, uh, being able to be in this moment and help support our patients and our customers um, the way we can has been incredibly humbling. And so we're really proud to have the opportunity to do so. Uh, there is a lot of coordination that happens. And what we've decided, and actually the state, the, the federal government, Operation Warp Speed and CDC, there was a decision that was made very early on that when vaccine does come, let's make sure that those that are the most vulnerable get the vaccine first. And so that's what us, everyone at Walgreens has been focused in on, the skilled nursing facilities, as well as the assisted living facilities and ensuring that we're able to manage all 35,000 facilities that have selected Walgreens so that we can administer vaccine. And so it is a complex process that the teams are working on, but we are on track mm -hmm. to ensure that those patients are getting their vaccinations. Yeah, and, but you know, and as we've learned that obviously age is the primary factor, almost the majority, I think three-fourths to even more than that of the fatalities, unfortunately, we're in the elderly community, but other comorbidities as well, extreme obesity, other related problems like heart disease, obviously, if you're immunocompromised. So when we get to sort of phase two, Rena, of this, where it broadens out past assisted living facilities, how is that going to look? It's such a it's such an important question because that's many of the patients and customers that we serve and many of our family members. And so the way it's going to work is that we're going to ensure that patients and customers are able to schedule an appointment. And there is going to be limited vaccine at the beginning. And so we want to make sure that those that have those high risk uh, conditions, as well as those that are elderly, are able to get their vaccinations initially. And so when you go onto our website, as well as or being able to call, you'll be able to schedule an appointment, um, receive a confirmation in a very methodical way, administer, we'll be able to administer vaccines uh, because we want to ensure that everyone is getting their vaccine, their first dose, as well as their second dose. But we do this in a way that it's streamlined and ensures that there is control over the process. Mm -hmm. And it, and it is a hard process, as we have shown. I was down in Louisiana, Rena, and, you know, I think what people don't realize is ultimately, as I showed, it comes down to like a guy and a van transporting it and also somebody, a pharmacist, like we've shown for you, who knows how to administer it. It often comes down to not enough people to give the shots. Are you ramping up the training for your pharmacists and for others inside of Walgreens so it's not just you know, one person giving a shot to one person, you can do three, four, five or more at a time. Yeah, you, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, our pharmacists have been providing vaccinations for over 10 years. But in the last couple of months, there's been regulatory changes that have now allowed trained technicians as well as other professionals to be able to administer vaccinations. So right now we have 35,000 trained immunizers in the organization. We are working towards increasing that to 45,000 trained individuals. And so what that will allow us to do is exactly to your point, it won't be one individual, but we'll have multiple immunizers in our location so we can immunize as many people as we can, but doing it safely and ensuring that we're maintaining all those COVID protocols that we have in place. Yeah, it's getting that training done to the EMTs and others, assistant pharmacists, whatever it may be. We appreciate the work you're putting in. Thanks for the update, Rena Shaw. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. So it, 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 listen, it may be slower than all of us want, folks. We get it. But the vaccines, they are coming. And as we finally get out of this, and we will, Jeffrey says to bet on a rebound in the consumer and consumer stocks. The 
the new Roaring Twenties, if you will. What, where could they have heard that? The firm saying names like Marriott, Tapestry, the old coach, and Royal Caribbean, as well as others, will benefit from all this pent-up demand. There are more names, and you can see the full list. Go to cnbc.com slash pro. But do that after the show, because we have got a lot left coming up right here, including a swan song for Intel CEO as he suddenly steps down, and investors love it. And watch out. The first sign of rising rates showing up today in the very real economy. That story, plus rapid fire ahead. Dow up 60. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. We've got some breaking news out of D.C. Very powerful House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, longtime Trump ally, is speaking on the House floor right now. Nonviolence. Yet the violent mob that descended upon this body was neither peaceful nor democratic. It acted to disrupt Congress's constitutional responsibility. It was also an attack on the people who work in this institution members, staff, and the hundreds who work behind the scenes so that we can serve the American people. The greatest statesman in the history of our country understood that the most dangerous threat to freedom is lawlessness. A young lawyer named Abraham Lincoln famously said, there is no grievance that is a fit object of redress by mob law. Yet for several hours last week, mob law tried to interfere with constitutional law. Some say the riots were caused by Antifa. There is absolutely no evidence of that. And conservatives should be the first to say so. Conservatives also know that the only thing that stops mob violence is to meet it with force rooted in justice, and backed by moral courage. And last week, we saw mob violence met by courage, sacrifice, and heroism from the brave men and women who protect this institution every day. But for the ba- bravery of the Capitol Police, the destruction and loss could have been much greater. We owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude. The loss of Officer Brian Sednick and Officer Howard Lindbergood is tragic and heartbreaking. We mourn their loss, remember their lives, and continue to pray for their families and loved ones. The officers of the Capitol Police deserve our eternal thanks. We will never forget the dangers they faced, the determination they showed, or the sacrifices they made. And make no mistake, those who are responsible for Wednesday's chaos will be brought to justice. Which brings me to today's debate. I believe impeaching the president in such a short time frame would be a mistake. No investigations have been completed. No hearings 
have been held. What's more, the Senate has confirmed that no trial will begin until after President-elect Biden is sworn in. But here is what a vote to impeach would do. A vote to impeach would further divide this nation. A vote to impeach will further fan the flames of partisan division. Most Americans want neither inaction nor retribution. They want durable, bipartisan justice. That path is still available, but is not the path we are on today. That doesn't mean the president is free from fault. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. These facts require immediate action by President Trump. Accept his share of responsibility, quell the brewing unrest, and ensure President-elect Biden is able to successfully begin his term. And the president's immediate action also deserves congressional action, which is why I think a fact-finding commission and a censure resolution would be prudent. Unfortunately, that is not where we are today. Truly, this past week was one of the most difficult for Congress and our nation. Of all the days here, last Wednesday was the worst day I've ever seen in Congress. Our country is deeply hurt. So where do we go from here? After all the violence and chaos of the last week, is it important to remember that we are still here to deliver a better future for all Americans? It does not matter if you are liberal, moderate, or conservative. All of us must resist the temptation of further polarization. Instead, we must unite once again as Americans. I understand for some this call for unity may ring hollow. But times like these are when we must remember who we are as Americans and what we as a nation stand for. And as history shows, unity is not an option. It's a necessity. It is as necessary today as it was at the start of our country. I want us all to think back to how John Adams and the Federalist Party handed power over to Thomas Jefferson and his party after the election of 1800. That election, and indeed that error, was one of the most divisive ever. Partisans used every dirty trick in the book. They demonized each other, dismissed reasonable dissent, and described their opponents as seditious. Sound familiar? The election of 1800 could have destroyed our young nation. But instead of breaking us, it helped us bring us together, thereby preserving the world's last best hope of freedom. After a hard-fought battle over the Electoral College in Congress, Adams conceded. And a peaceful transfer of power, the first in American history, took place. Jefferson, for his part, put aside the division of the era and preached forgiveness. Yes, unity. In his first inaugural address, he famously said, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. Jefferson and Adams did not end every difference of opinion that existed in America. 
nor did they try. In a free country as big and diverse as ours, that would be impossible. What they did was more important. They recognized a deeper unity, a unity rooted in the famous proposition both men helped to write. At a critical moment in history, our founders chose, chose peace, liberty, partnership, over tension, division, and partisanship. For the sake of our country, we must make the exact same choice. We have already begun. Last week, despite the lingering shock and amid the windows still broken, we did what all healthy democracies do. We debated and we voted. In this country, we solve our disputes at the ballot box and, not, and through debates and votes on the floor of this exact chamber. We did our duty then and we must do more. The eyes of the nation and the world are upon us. We must seize this opportunity and heal and grow stronger. As leaders, our place in history depends on whether we call on our better angels and refocus our efforts to work directly for the American people. United, we can deliver peace, strength, and prosperity our country's desperately needs. Divided, we will fail. What we saw last week was not the American way. Neither is the continued rhetoric that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president. Let's be clear. Joe Biden will be sworn in as president of the United States in one week because he won the election. And the presidency in this Congress will face immediate challenges that must be addressed. I stand ready to assist in that effort with good faith, goodwill, and an open hand. The United States remains exceptional. We remain extraordinary. In the coming weeks and months, we must work together, all of us, to recharge the light of our shining city on the hill. History has shown us a way. History has given us a path. Just as Adams and Jefferson has shown, now is the moment that we should do the exact same. In these trying times, may God continue to bless America and let's chart a course that history will repeat, but not what's happening today. I yield back. The gentleman yields back. The gentleman from Ohio continues to reserve. The gentleman Republican House reserve. Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy saying that I believe voting to impeach the president in such a short time frame would be a mistake. We're back right after this. Airbnb's big surprise, Intel CEO unexpectedly bows out and, and uh, a firm red hot to kick off the 2021 IPO market. It is time for rapid fire. Here now to break down the headlines, John Fort, Deirdre Bosa, and Dominic Chu. All right, everybody ready? First topic, the 2021 IPO lineup is gonna have a tough act to follow after today. A firm hitting the market and a lot of people hitting the bid. Price is soaring. Its first trade blew past the IPO price, opening at 90.90. Look at that. Shares of a firm, John Fort, are up 100%. My math says that's a double. Are you surprised <laughs> by the strong demand? That's very good, Brian. And uh, yeah, Max Levchin, the founder and CEO. Interesting, 19 years ago, 
He's like one of the fathers of fintech. He took PayPal public for the first time. Now a firm, uh, it's got these deals with Shopify and others really challenging the credit card model. Um, You know, there was rumor that this was coming later uh, in the year, last year. It's coming right now. I I talked to him on the phone last night and and again this morning. It's interesting. You know, he's... uh, He's prepared uh, for this, clearly having been in this seat uh, for a long time, was a chairman of Yelp. It's going to be really interesting for the economy to see how well a structure like this does. Yeah. You know, Deirdre, though, there has been this is kind of like a Klarna who we've talked to of Sweden, not exactly analogous. The criticism of companies like this is, you know, you think, oh, it's only that much a month. Pretty soon there's a hundred of only that much a month and people can get themselves into deep doo-doo from a credit perspective. Yeah, the business model has evolved, but we can't forget about Lending Club and some of the companies that have come before it. But Brian, I think, you know, what I'm taking away from this right now is that this is truly going to be the year of the fintech unicorn or the fintech IPO. We're starting 2021 off with more unicorns than ever, over 250. Two of the top five, the biggest five U.S. unicorns, they are now fintech companies, Square and uh, Chime. So they're just off to the races for the start of this year. It also makes that Visa Plaid called off deal earlier this week look very, very interesting. It looks like Visa, you know, for $5.3 billion for a fintech uh, company Plaid, that looks like a steal. So calling that off, you can bet that Plaid is going to yeah. look very appealing to some of the back <laughs> people well, I, for the I, IPO I remember- market, for the IPO bankers. I'm old enough to remember, Deirdre, when there were 20 ride-sharing companies in America, right? Now there's, it's like fintech nowadays. All right. Turning now to Intel, CEO Bob Swans shocking everybody, saying he's going to step down on February 15th. And somebody named Pat Gelsinger, CEO of VMware, will succeed him as well. The stock, by the way, climbing higher on the announcement. Shares of Intel actually on pace for their best day, Dom, since March of 2020, because you got activist hedge fund, third point, Dan Loeb coming out saying, good job. Are you shocked at the positive market reaction, given that it's just a CEO stepping down? No, I'm not shocked about it at all. It's because it's been such an underperformer for such a long time. And there's a reason why activist investors have been involved in this particular name. It's one of the few, very few Dow components, current Dow components, that still hasn't really recovered. It's kind of IPO or not IPO. It's dot-com era highs. And for that reason, there are those out there who believe that Intel is perhaps more of a dinosaur. What this does show is that there is appetite among investors to get back into Intel because they believe the infrastructure is there to really kickstart the growth engine. A change at the helm, especially from Intel's former chief technology officer, may be just what this company has. But of course, everybody else in the semiconductor business right now is red hot. Intel might be that catch up trade that some value investors are looking big towards in 2021. Yeah, John, the long-term chart looks good, but the stock is down over one year when you got AMD and NVIDIA basically up 80, 90, 100%. I mean, is that ultimately what cooked Swan's goose was the lack of return for investors or something else? I don't know. Uh, I really don't. They were in this tough position that Swan didn't get them into with manufacturing problems. They're behind on that. But look, the Pat Gelsinger going to Intel is about as close as Intel could get to a founder return. The guy started his career at Intel at 18 years old, really grew up in the company, 
under uh, the, the, the founders and the people who built Intel into what it is. And he's got a background in software besides his background in chips. And software is so important in the chip industry right now. So what he says, what he does uh, in these opening moves, talking about what Intel is going to do about outsourcing manufacturing more or less, all of that incredibly important. But Pat Gelsinger, I mean, talk about getting a veteran. He said he wasn't going to take the job and a couple years ago, but now he's got it. And we have to give yeah, props to John here really quick, Brian. I know we got to move on, but he called this, John, you called this two years ago. I saw that tweet. You said call Pat Gelsinger, and it has happened. So kudos to you. John Fort called that as well. By the way, according to facts that here, Swan's got paid $67 million. So if your goose is going to be cooked for that amount of money, it's not the end of the world. All right, let's move on now to topic number three. Corporations beginning to take a proactive approach to the presidential inauguration and fears about unrest in the nation's capital. Airbnb canceling and blocking future reservations in the D.C. metro area during the week of President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration, which, by the way, is next week. Shares of Airbnb jumping today. Guests who had placed a reservation will be refunded in full, and Airbnb will also reimburse hosts on the other side of the canceled bookings. Deirdre Bosa, your take on that. Investors, they seem to like it, even though it may cost Airbnb money. I mean, it is all in that stock performance. So shares up more than 8%, while Airbnb is basically saying that it's going to lose business next week and reimburse the hosts that would have made that money. That sort of tells you everything that you need to know. Airbnb has been one of these gig economy companies that has taken a more cooperative stance with regulators. They have had a pretty clear I would say a very clear um, policy with regards to their platform, who they let on and who they don't and how they monitor it. And it sort of stands in stark contrast to some of the other platforms that we've been talking about all week, Twitter, Facebook, etc. It is very different. They don't need to, you know, make a stand by kicking off the president, but they do have a very close eye on, you know, bad actors that they don't want to be on the platform. So them taking the stand is not a surprise to me. It's also not a surprise that investors are actually welcoming it. It really tells you how they look at Airbnb different from some of the other platforms. Um, It's also, Brian, full circle. Uh, The company started during Obama's inauguration. They had, um, they had, they asked people to let um, vacationers sleep on mattresses in their extra rooms or in their apartments. And now, yeah, that's how it got it. The air bed. A lot of people don't realize that the air bed is sort of what they had Dom Chu very, very quickly here. Uh, It's also what I called the goat trade on worldwide exchange, get out and travel. So it's probably getting swept up in some of that optimism as well. Well, first of all, the travel demand right now might be not as much as it would be on a normal inaugural type weekend and week just because of the covid pandemic right now. But I would say this, the, the thing that caught me about this is just how much corporate activism is now going to play a part in the overall narrative. It was during the Trump administration, the last four years, that companies have now been almost forced in the last couple of years years to take stances, stances that they mainly wouldn't have taken in years prior. So Airbnb this time around taking some of a some bit of a proactive step, stepping outside of the bounds of normal business to do something that's quote unquote right or wrong in the eyes of some. Corporate conscience, Dom Chu, John Fortin, Deirdre Bosa, before I let you go, love the new background, but you got to answer a question. Is the Eagle safe and sound and in a secure location? (laughs) You should have told me, Brian, I could have maybe 
flicked a switch and showed you the eagle. It will maybe I'll surprise you on next rapid fire. Okay, I'll bring back the eagle. You're not the only one Love that's asked that. for it. Oh, it's the eagle. It's legendary. It's uh, Deirdre Bosa, John, and Deirdre. We'll look forward to it. Thank <laughs> you very much, Tom Chu. Appreciate it. All right. Up next, oil price surging and the stocks rising with it. But will higher prices send production back up again and then prices back down as the industry does every time? Maybe the most listened to man in American oil, Pioneers Natural Scott Sheffield is here exclusively with that and more next. All right, well, crude oil may be down a little bit today, but it's starting off the year certainly red hot, to the tune of 9% just this year, and that has been lifting energy stocks as well. Pioneer Natural Resources is one of those names, jumping double digits this month alone and is now up nearly 170% from its year low. Scott Sheffield is president and CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, maybe the most listened to man in American oil. We finally got John Scott after a couple of uh, back and forth with all the news that certainly is going on. Really appreciate you coming on to CNBC and the exchange. First off, what was your immediate reaction to the Saudi surprise, as I'll call it, of the OPEC meeting last week where the Saudis practically said, we're cutting a million barrels a day starting in February, shocked everyone. No, thank you, Brian. It's always great to be on your show. And the last time we saw each other, sad to say, was at the Goldman Conference in Florida uh, about a year ago. We just had that Goldman Conference uh, just last week. But I think everybody was surprised about what Saudi did. They did it for two months. Uh, it moved up the price significantly. But I think what's most important, they finally took a leadership position. As you know, they've been negotiating between Russia, UAE, Iraqis, uh, and they finally took a what I call a, a very important decision. It's a short-term decision, uh, and they ended up making money off of it by cutting a million barrels a day for roughly uh, two months. So we're all very excited about that that change in their philosophy. Yeah, and I want to give you credit, by the way, you're the only American CEO that I've seen who's got on a plane and flown over to Vienna, Austria, maybe some before you, but you're the only one I've seen that's actually been to an OPEC meeting. All right, Scott, as you know, next week's the inauguration. We've got a new administration coming in. What are you and your team expecting from this incoming administration? Do you think we're going to see an all-out ban on fracking, a ban on federal lands? What's your best estimation of incoming energy policy? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh, we don't see any major changes than we saw in the Obama administration. Uh, our industry did a great job in cooperating with the Obama administration. I anticipate the same. I think uh, flaring and emissions will be a topic. Uh, the big issue, I think, on everybody's table uh, is whether or not they're going to ban um, uh, drilling on federal leases. If it does, it'll greatly affect uh, the Gulf of Mexico. It'll greatly affect New, New Mexico in the Permian Basin, uh, Wyoming, and the Bakken. If we see that, what's going to happen, U.S. production will go on a decline uh, if they stop drilling, and we're going to see Im imports rise again from the Middle East. So we'll be back in that same cycle. So we hope they don't make that decision, but that's probably the most one of the most important decisions uh, that we do, do not know at this point in time what they're going to do. Yeah, I've talked to people in the Obama administration. Some of them may be influential. They remember that for two years, that oil and gas during the depths of the financial crisis, Scott, was the only industry in America 
adding jobs. It saved a lot of people's jobs and homes. That's one of the reasons I got involved with it. All right, let's move on. You know your industry, Scott. Every time prices move up just a bit, the drilling rigs come back out, production goes back up, and prices go back down. Has the industry gotten smarter this time? Yes, they have, Brian. Uh, in fact, we closed on a uh, partially um, opportunity yesterday. So now Pioneer is a $35 billion enterprise value. We're probably the, we're the, by far the largest Permian player, by far the largest position in production. We're excited about having our 160 new Parsley employees join the company yesterday. But what we're changing is the new investor model. I spent probably a good 30 trips in 19 and 20, early 20, talking to investors. What should be the new model? And it's all about free cash flow. We're only going to spend 60 to 65 percent of our capital of our, our cash flow each year, where before we spent over 100 mm -hmm. percent. And we're going to distribute uh, that excess cash flow to the investor. And so I would expect um, 22 to 25 uh, will be throwing off dividends in that six to seven percent range. Uh, so big dividends. There you go. We won't, hey, Scott, we. So, we yeah. unfortunately got to leave it there. Got another show coming up, but we really appreciate your insight of variable dividend strategy, something new and interesting in oil. It's got investors' attention. Scott, best to you and your team. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, appreciate Brian. It. Scott Sheffield. All right, take care. And that does it for The Exchange. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.